0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Um, Like I said earlier, my name is Kent. If we hadn't had the chance to meet, I'd love the opportunity to meet you if you want to come up and talk after the gathering. Um, We are headed to Matthew 8 this morning because we are jumping back into a series that we actually started last August where we're just walking passage by passage, line by line through the gospel of Matthew in the Bible. Uh, If you are newer to our church, like I said, last fall we kicked off this series. Uh, We honestly don't know how many years it will take take us to get all the way through the book of Matthew. If I had to guess, I think it's going to be somewhere between three years and 15, maybe. Um, I'm honestly not sure. I think I'm joking about 15, but I honestly don't know. Uh, It could take us that long. Um, But we're just kind of walking little by little through this particular book, but we're sort of doing it in installments. We're doing a few chapters here and then some other things and then a few more chapters of Matthew, sort of like that. So obviously that's a big undertaking for us. It's the first ever multiple year teaching series that we have attempted as a church. But we figure if one thing is worth spending multiple years learning about together, it's the life and ministry of Jesus. That seems like a pretty good way to spend three or four or 15 years. Um, And so what we're going to do is just kind of do that. We're just going to walk little by little through this particular book. If you weren't around uh, for the last installment of the book of Matthew, we covered chapters four through seven. Uh, You can go back on our website, catch up on that. I don't have time to catch you up on everything that we covered then. Uh, But today we are going to move on to the next section of the book, chapters eight through 10 specifically. And in these chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, the focus of the book of Matthew shifts just a little bit. Uh, and, And it starts talking about sort of the wide variety of people that Jesus interacts with during his life. In these three chapters, Jesus comes across all kinds of people, including his disciples, potential disciples of his, sick people, demon-possessed people, hyper-religious people, and so on and so forth. A lot of different types of people. But I think in each interaction with these very different people in these chapters, we get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus for people and we get a glimpse into what the kingdom of God is really all about. So that's what we'll be looking at as we go along. Now today specifically, what we are going to look at are three different stories of Jesus interacting with people who are suffering from various types of disease and illness. So I want us to take a look at all this and kind of see what we can learn from it in our context Today, So pick it up with me, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, When he, that's Jesus, came down from the mountain where he had been giving the Sermon on the Mount in the previous chapters, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Verse 3, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So let's stop right there for just a bit. So a man with leprosy approaches Jesus and asks Jesus to heal him. Now leprosy back then was not the precise condition that we think of it being today. It was sort of a a catch-all term that they used at the time for any sort of deteriorating skin disease. So this guy was likely in some sort of constant, chronic pain from his condition, and because of the nature of his disease, he likely would have been disfigured in some sort of noticeable way, which no doubt earned him regular glances and stares from nearly anyone who saw him. But on top of all of that, a lot of commentators actually say that one of the worst parts of having leprosy in this day and age wasn't actually the physical condition itself. That wasn't the worst part of it. Most people say that the worst part of it was actually the social isolation that came along with it. Because people believed leprosy was wildly contagious. If, if you had leprosy, you were legally required to yell out the word unclean anywhere you went in public so that people could get as far away from you as they possibly could. It was forbidden to touch a person with leprosy or to touch anything that that person had touched or else you became ritually unclean as a result. So in addition to a debilitating disease that was causing your flesh to literally waste away, in addition to being stared at because people thought you looked different or weird, you were also seen as unsafe to anyone that you encountered. So you can begin to imagine the stigma and the shame and the social loneliness that this man was experiencing at this point in his life. But here in the story, he approaches Jesus for healing and he receives that healing. Jesus reaches out and he touches the man and the man is healed. Now this is interesting to me. There's no reason for us to think that Jesus had to touch the man in order to heal him, right? And we have plenty of other stories in the Gospels where Jesus heals people without contacting them at all, or even from a great distance away. We're about to read one of those stories next in our passage for today. So Jesus did not have to touch the man in order to heal him. In fact, it might have been better in some ways for Jesus not to touch this guy. Because remember, if you touch an unclean person, you become unclean as a result. But Jesus, despite all of that, chooses to reach out and touch this man as he heals them. So just put yourself in this situation for a second. You've been isolated from your community, from your family, from your friends for likely years, maybe decades of your life as you suffer from a terrible illness all on your own. You can't remember the last time you had a hug or a handshake or even a hand on your shoulder. In fact, you probably can't even remember the last time that you went out in public and somebody accidentally brushed up against you because everywhere you go, people scatter as far away from you as they possibly can. And in this moment, Jesus chooses to do what no one else will. He embraces the man. And when he does that, Jesus actually becomes ritually unclean and the man becomes clean. The stigma and the shame of the disease is transferred to Jesus and Jesus' healing is transferred to the man. We're going to get into more of what that means at the end of today, what that points to. But Jesus then tells him to go show himself to the priest so that he can be officially readmitted to the life of his people, the communal life. Of his people. That's the first story that we get in this passage of healing. So let's take a look at the next one, picking it back up in verse 5 of our passage. It says, When he, he being Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion, in other words, a Roman soldier, came forward to Jesus, appealing to him Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he, Jesus, said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed from a distance. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. In other words, I understand how authority works. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this from the man, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west. In other words, from all, other, from all over, every nation and people group and every ethnicity, Jewish and non-Jewish people. Everyone will come and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Translation, some of you who think that you are automatically a part of my kingdom because of your ethnicity or your family background or your heritage, some of you might just find yourselves on the outside of the kingdom instead. Verse 13, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So this time, Jesus comes across a centurion or an officer in the Roman military. This man asks Jesus not to heal him, but to heal his servant who is back at home and is currently paralyzed. Jesus responds with, yes, I will come and heal him. Now keep in mind that culturally, the tensions were pretty high between the Jewish people and the nation of Rome. At the time, this centurion was an officer in an occupying army. His job, at least in part, was to use intimidation to squash any attempts by the Jewish people at uprisings or insurrections against the Roman Empire. So, just as maybe the closest parallel that we can imagine in our day and age, imagine an officer in Hitler's regime approaching a Jewish man during the Holocaust and asking the Jewish man to heal the soldier servant. This is a tad awkward, to say the least, right? It's a rare moment of almost forced humility for a Roman officer that would not be very familiar with humility at all. But he operates out of what he knows. The centurion says he doesn't see himself as worthy to have Jesus come under his roof, but that he understands how authority works. He says, hey, I have people that I'm in charge of, and when I tell them to do something, they do it. It happens just because I want it to happen, which is his way of saying he knows that Jesus can heal people at a distance because Jesus has the authority and the desire to do it. Then Jesus marvels at this faith for the incredible display that it is, saying that he hasn't seen faith like this in all of Israel, which is exactly as controversial to say at the time as you might think that it is, and heals the man's servant from a distance. Once again, Jesus heals. Now let's look at the last story, the shortest one that we're looking at today in verses 14 and 15. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother in law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve Jesus. Now, you and I might read this last story in the passage and think, it kind of seems like this one isn't as bad as the other two conditions, right? Like life altering, deteriorating skin disease, paralysis. And then Peter's mother-in-law like has the sniffles. Like, I don't really understand how this one fits with the other two stories. Like if, if all she has is a fever, is that even something that Jesus is needed for? Like maybe she just got the second dose of the COVID vaccine and she'll just wait it out for 24 hours and she'll be fine, right? Like take some Tylenol, like, or whatever Tylenol was back then, right? Like just take something, you'll be fine. It's easy for us to think this isn't as bad as a, a, of a condition, But most scholars say it was likely a little more serious than that. They say most likely what she was suffering from was malaria, but a fever back then was seen as a disease, not as a symptom. But Jesus and the disciples roll up to Peter's house, and in this story, it doesn't even say that this woman asked Jesus for healing, Jesus just does it. He just brings healing to her. He touches her hand. She is immediately healed to the point that she gets up and goes right about life as usual. He heals her completely. And then Matthew sort of ties a bow on everything that we've read so far in verse 16. Take a look with me there. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. In other words, What we've just read are just three highlighted instances of something that happened fairly regularly in Jesus' life and ministry. Even that night alone, it says many people who were sick and demon-possessed were brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed every one of them. So three different stories that involve three very different people, very different situations. But in each of them, Jesus responds by healing the person totally and completely from whatever their illness happens to be. So our question for this morning is what can we glean from all of these stories? I think there are at least three takeaways from what we just read that are worth highlighting. Probably more than that, but at least three takeaways. We'll spend a little bit of time on each one of these before we're done. Takeaway number one is that Jesus healed people. Jesus healed people. Maybe that seems obvious, but I think before going any further today, it would probably be silly to not at least acknowledge perhaps the most obvious takeaway from this passage, which is that Jesus regularly healed people. Jesus saw people with real physical ailments and illnesses and diseases And then he did something about those conditions. In other words, these stories are not intended as as metaphors or embellished, exaggerated stories. They are meant as actual historical events, things that really happened. Healing was a frequent enough activity in Jesus' life that he became known by many people as a healer. People came out to him constantly asking him to heal them because they had seen him do it or they had heard from others that he could do it. Jesus healed people. Now, depending on your religious background or lack thereof, your response to the reality that Jesus healed people might be anything from, yeah, of course Jesus healed people to, yeah, I seriously doubt that that happened. Or maybe you're somewhere in the middle of those two. Maybe you don't doubt that it happened back then, but you view it as sort of a unique thing to to Jesus and his early disciples in their day, not necessarily something that we should still expect to happen today in our setting. Some people even have what they see as biblical reasons for believing that things like healing don't still happen today. And If that's you, if that's your perspective, if that's where you're at on all of this and you're here today, I want you to know we're not mad at you for believing that. You're certainly welcome to read the Bible in that particular way. And at the same time, I will say that in my opinion, you have to work a lot harder to arrive at that conclusion from the scriptures than you do otherwise, I would argue there are at least no clear places in the Bible that insist that healing only happened back then, during one particular period of church history by one select group of people. Rather, it seems to me to be the assumption in the scriptures that followers of Jesus would continue in this particular tradition throughout time. And that's all I really plan to say about that debate today. If you want to argue more with me about that, you're certainly welcome to do that. Just send me an email. My email is jeff at citychurchknox.com. And you might just want to send like several emails in a row just to make sure that I get it. Uh, I would love to talk to you more about that, but that's just kind of our perspective here at City Church. But I will say this, at least from what I've seen and I've observed, a lot of people who believe that healing doesn't still happen today, aren't primarily getting that belief from the scriptures. They're not starting there. They're usually getting it from their experience. They don't think it happens because they simply haven't seen it happen. And while that's understandable, as we've mentioned before, I would just encourage you not to use your experience as the primary authority in your life. It's wise not to do that in general with anything, but I think it's especially good for us to remember when it comes to things like healing. As followers of Jesus, we don't read the Bible through the lenses of our experience and make our experience authoritative. We let the Bible shape and inform our experiences. So if the Bible says that healing happens, even if that hasn't been our personal experience, we choose to believe what the Bible says and we ask the Holy Spirit for help in the meantime, believing that. But then for other people, maybe the reason that that you're skeptical about healing is because you've seen things like healing get really weird in some church contexts. Maybe that's why you have trouble believing in this sort of stuff. And to that, I'd just like to say, of course it can get weird. But, but so can things in most any church tradition throughout church history, right? Right? Charismatic churches can get weird. Reformed churches can get weird. Non-reformed churches can get weird. Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Episcopalian churches, any tradition that has ever existed can get weird outside of the guidance and the help of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. That's always been the case. That's why we need the guidance of those two things. So you name it, if there's a church or tradition out there, it can get Weird. And if you don't think your particular tradition can get weird, chances are that's because you grew up in that tradition. And you might be a little bit blind to its weaknesses. But hear me on this none of that is reason to reject the good in any of those traditions. It's a reason to be sure that we're all seeking the wisdom and help of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Whatever tradition we happen to be in, but we don't reject things from other traditions just because they're different or they're uncomfortable to us. And specifically, with any tradition that includes the belief in healing, biblically, it might just be that they're on to something even if it makes us a little uncomfortable. So we probably do well to at least consider it. Sometimes obedience to Jesus and the things that he calls us to is going to make us a tad uncomfortable. And sometimes that can be a really, really good thing for us. But the point is that Jesus healed people. And so until we have a solid biblical reason to believe otherwise... That means that we are choosing to believe here at City Church that he still desires to heal in our day and age. And if that's true, that means that there's at least a pretty good chance he wants to heal people in this room today. So before we're done this morning, we're actually going to devote some time to praying for people's healing in this room. Ask God to heal people in this room. And now that I've made some of you very anxious and uncomfortable about that, let's move on to point number two. Takeaway number two that I think we get from this passage is about the people that Jesus heals. The people that Jesus heals. Specifically, I think we would do well to take note of the types of people that Jesus heals. So if we wanted to, we could have done an individual teaching on each one of these three stories today, right? We could have split them up. And by doing that, we probably could have gone into a lot more detail on each one of the stories, learned all sorts of things through that, and that would have value. But I didn't do that for a couple reasons. One is logistical. At some point, unless we do want to be in the book of Matthew for 15 years, we're gonna have to combine some passages together, right? But the more important reason that I wanted us to read these three stories together is that sometimes we can glean things from looking at a collection of passages that we may miss from looking at them in isolation. Sometimes Matthew actually intentionally groups certain stories together in his gospel because he sees in them a theme that he wants to highlight for us. And I think that is very much true when it comes to the three stories that we read today in Matthew chapter eight. So when you read through these stories on their own, what you'll see is just three different people that all happen to receive healing from Jesus. But here's what happens when you read them in succession. You observe that Jesus has just healed a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. That's what just happened, a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. Now here's why that matters it would have been hard for you to find three types of people who were more consistently excluded from the community of God in most Jewish people's minds at the time. People with leprosy were often excluded, like we said, because of their ailment, because it made them ceremonially unclean. Gentiles were excluded because they were seen as unclean due to being ethnic outsiders And Jewish women were actually usually included, but only technically, sort of by association with their husbands or their family, not in and of themselves. It was a very patriarchal society. All of these people were excluded one way or another from the communal life of God's people, but here in the stories we have Jesus interacting with each of these people individually and accepting them individually and healing them individually. And not only that, but these are the first three individual stories of healing that we read about in the Gospel of Matthew. Does it not seem significant to you that the first three stories that Matthew chooses to tell about Jesus healing people were him healing people who were seen at the time as outsiders? I think this is Matthew communicating to his audience that Jesus' kingdom is far more expansive and far more inclusive than many people had categories for at the time. That, after all, is what the response to the centurion is all about in the passage. Jesus says, hey, this is what kingdom faith actually looks like in this man. Many of you who thought you belonged to the kingdom already actually don't, and many of you who think you, can be, you can't be a part of it actually are. So I'll just say this, if you're the type that has never felt like you belonged in a church setting, if you're the type that feels like if I walk in the door, the lightning's going to strike, right? Right? If you don't ever feel like you've belonged in the religious scene, if your experience around church and church people is always feeling sort of odd and excluded and like you don't particularly belong there, I think one thing that this passage may be telling you is that Jesus may feel just the opposite about you, that he may want to include you particularly in his kingdom. Because Jesus' healing was about more than just restoring health to someone's body. It was evidently about showing what types of people were invited and included in his kingdom. Takeaway number three. This is the last one that we'll do this morning. Is the meaning of healing. The meaning of healing. So lastly, in these three stories, I think we get a glimpse at the true, deeper meaning of healing in Jesus' ministry. At the very end of our passage, verse 17, Matthew the author, actually drops us a little editor's note of sorts. Take a look with me at verse 17. It says, "All of this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases." Matthew says that all of this, everything that we've just read, these examples of Jesus bringing healing to people that needed healing, are actually fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. He mentions this one specifically from Isaiah chapter 53, about a figure in the future who would come one day who would take our illnesses and bear our diseases. Now, that is really interesting language to me. Because it doesn't just say that Jesus healed or removed our illnesses, it says that he took them. Did you see that? Those two words in the Greek language literally mean to receive and to carry our illnesses. Now the reason I say that's interesting is because we don't have any record of Jesus actually becoming sick with these people's illnesses as a result of healing them, right? Like, Jesus doesn't come down with leprosy after healing the man with leprosy. He doesn't become paralyzed after healing the centurion's servant. He doesn't come down with a fever after he heals Peter's mother-in-law. So, so he's not bearing them in that sense. But if that's not what Matthew and Isaiah mean, what, what do they mean exactly when they say that about Jesus? Well, first you need to understand that in the biblical story, sickness, disease, and death are all seen as results or consequences of sin. Now, by that, I want to be very specific here. I I don't mean results of sin at an individual level. I don't mean the reason that you are sick is because of your individual sin. That's not the point. I mean it at a cosmic level. I mean that the reason that sickness and disease and death exist in our world is because sin exists in our world. Does that make sense, at least so far? The scriptures teach that when sin entered the human story, it necessarily brought sickness, disease, and death along with it. That was not a part of God's original intention for the world. So when Matthew says that Jesus took up and bore our sicknesses, he also doesn't mean it at an individual level. He means it at a cosmic level. He doesn't mean that Jesus took on each person's individual illness. What he means is that Jesus took on the sickness of the whole world. So we, t- we talked about this just a week or so ago at our Good Friday gathering, how on the cross, what was happening is that Jesus was experiencing the brunt force of sin's impact on creation. He was receiving all of the pain, all of the tragedy, all of the sickness and the brokenness that sin had caused in our world. And by doing that, the scriptures actually teach that he made healing and wholeness possible For all of us. Isaiah 53 actually says it explicitly in the very next verse after the one Matthew quoted. It says, by his wounds we are healed. So think back to the man with leprosy in the story for just a second. When Jesus touched the man with leprosy, there was an exchange that took place in that interaction. Jesus took on at least the shame and the stigma of his illness. Jesus was now seen as ritually unclean because of that contact. But also, the man with leprosy received healing from Jesus. He became clean as a result of that interaction. Jesus traded his cleanness for the man's uncleanness. And what Matthew is saying here is that what we're seeing in stories like that, in exchanges like that, is a tangible example of an even more significant exchange that takes place with Jesus. That on the cross, Jesus took on and bore the cumulative weight of sin, and he transferred his healing and wholeness to us, for all of us who would believe in Jesus. By his wounds, we are healed. Now, seen properly, I think this can give us some really helpful guardrails when it comes to how we approach, how we think about things like healing. I think this means that on the one hand, if we ever find ourselves focusing more on healing than we focus on the liberating power of the gospel message itself, that would seem to indicate that we've missed the point a little bit, right? Because the point of healing, according to Matthew and according to Isaiah, was to point us to the cross where Jesus did not just take away sickness, but he took away the cause of sickness on creation. He took away sin itself. So we shouldn't ever allow the picture to become more important to us than the reality. I think that's one guardrail it gives us. But on the other hand, if we ever find ourselves focusing only on, on how Jesus delivers us from sin, and we never desire things like physical healing for anyone, that would seem to indicate that we've missed the point too. Because that means we have, in essence, spiritualized the gospel. We've relegated the good news itself to something that only has spiritual, sort of intangible benefits, and nothing further than that. But that wouldn't make any sense if you think about it. For, for instance, imagine for a second believing that Jesus came to heal the sin that causes broken relationships, but saying that God doesn't care at all about healing the broken relationships themselves. That doesn't make any sense. Imagine saying that that Jesus came to do something about the sin that leads to injustice in our world, but that he doesn't care at all about pursuing justice itself and alleviating injustice that wouldn't make any sense and similarly I would say it also doesn't make any sense to say that Jesus came to heal the cause of sickness but that he doesn't care at all about healing the sickness itself the Jesus I read about in the scriptures was not just interested in healing us spiritually he is interested in eventually healing all of creation to how it was meant to be God desires to heal our sin, yes, and he desires to heal all that sin has broken in our world. Starting now in part and then completely on the day that he returns. That is what Jesus is up to in these stories, and I believe that's what he desires to be up to in our midst as well. So all my cards on the table, here's how I hope that this teaching hits us as a church family. If I just had to guess, based on what I know about our church, I would guess that more of us may err towards that second tendency. I I think at times, we may be guilty, at least some of us, of spiritualizing Jesus's desire to heal and restore. I'm not saying that we don't ever pray for God to heal. I've heard us pray for that regularly. But I think at times, we almost pray that as an obligation, not a true expectation that he's going to do it. So I'll just speak for me. I think a lot of times, I start off praying that God would heal somebody because I know I'm supposed to pray that. And then I actually spend the bulk of my time praying for other things, right? That they would suffer well or that they would suffer in a way that points back Jesus, so that God would give them strength and endurance in all of that. And all of those things are great to pray for. I'm not saying don't pray for those things, but I'm saying for me personally, I tend to pray a lot more for those things than I do for the healing itself. A, A lot of times, I don't know that I pray for healing for people really expecting that it will happen. But think with me back to the centurion in our passage, the Roman officer. Jesus commends him for his faith because he has a full understanding and expectation that Jesus can and will heal. He says, you don't even have to come to my house. Jesus, if you just give the word from here, my servant will be healed. I know it can happen. So my question is, what would it look like for us to embody that type of faith and expectation of healing? Not because God owes it to us, not because he's obligated to us in that way, not even because God's healing or lack thereof is a sign of how much or how little he loves us or the person we're praying for healing for. But what if we embodied that type of faith, that type of expectation, simply because Matthew and Isaiah say that Jesus came to take up and bear the sorrows of the world? And part of that is him desiring to heal. So I would love it if maybe starting this morning, many of us in the room could, could move from believing in theory that God can heal to being people that pray expectantly for him to do it. Because sometimes those are very different things, right? Like what, what if we prayed like we expected God to do these types of things? And I'll just add sometimes that is going to look like praying more than once. God sometimes responds and heals right away, to be sure. I've seen it happen. But more often than not, what I've seen God do is that he heals in response to a group of people who prayed persistently for God to heal someone, to a group of people that took Jesus' instructions elsewhere seriously to, quote, pray and not give up. And lastly, if God ends up demonstrating to us that his plan is not to heal in a particular scenario, I want to ask that we be okay with that. We don't let that discourage us from knowing him or loving him or asking him to do it in the future, because we know that for all of us who follow Jesus, healing is coming. We know the implications of the cross. We know that the new heavens and the new earth are in route to us at the moment. We know that it's never actually a question of whether or not God will heal us. It's only a question of how soon. Now or in the new heavens and the new earth. But in the meantime, we understand as followers of Jesus and we believe that God desires to bring glimpses of the new heavens, of the new earth, to bear today. So we pray in that direction. So as we mentioned earlier, we're just gonna take some time to do precisely that. If you've got your stuff out, your Bible out, go ahead and put that away. If you don't mind, go ahead and um, if you will, just take a second to prepare to to approach God in prayer. As you put your stuff away, if you wanna go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes. I just want us to take a second and just respond in faith to what these passages teach us about who Jesus is. So as you do that, if you are here this morning and you are currently experiencing any type of sickness or illness or injury, whether that's chronic pain or nerve damage or, or constant pain in your joints that comes and goes. Maybe, maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's heart disease or, or it's cancer or it's Lyme disease. It's chronic fatigue, something like that. Whatever it is, if it matters to you, it matters to us and God as well. Maybe it's something that you've taken medicine for, but it hasn't really gotten any better. Maybe it's something that you've talked to the doctors about, you've seen doctors about over and over and over again, and they really have no idea what it could be. But if that's you, if you're experiencing any version of that, if you're in that category, I just want you to somehow, with, with every head bowed, every eye closed. I just want you to somehow indicate that. You can, you can stand up, you can lift your hand or both hands, you can just open your hands on your lap, however you want to do it, but just as a sign of faith and openness to the healing of God. I want you to just indicate that in some outward way. And additionally, if if you're in the room right now and you know someone who needs healing, not you, but someone else, whether they're here with you in the room or not, remember God healed the centurion servant from a great distance away. So if you know somebody who's here or hundreds of miles away that needs healing, I want you to somehow indicate that on their behalf. Stand up, open your hands, whatever you need to do. Now with that done, here's what I would love to happen. I want every single person in this room who belongs to Jesus to to pray right now on behalf of these people. I want you to pray and ask God to heal and restore. I want you to ask him to resolve whatever it is completely and fully in this moment. I know this is likely weird to some of us and that is so okay, but sometimes God asks us to do things that seem a little bit weird to us and that can be a great thing. So I want you to just take a second silently, out loud, whatever you want to do, to pray for total and complete healing on behalf of these people in the room. If you're someone asking for healing, feel free to pray alongside of them or just sit there and receive it as a gift, whatever you need to do. I want us to pray together for a few moments and then I'll close this out. You can do that now. Father, we come to you this morning as the author of all life, as the one who created a world to function without sickness and without disease and without illness without death. God, the one who is in authority above all, above demons, above disease, above cancer, whatever it is. God, you are in authority above all, and if you want something to happen, it happens. And so God, would you give us faith? Would you give us help? Would you send us your spirit to reside in us and fill us and believe that that's who you are? God, for those of us that have been just beaten down over years and years and years, of illness or pain or disease or whatever the case may be. God, I pray that right now you would increase faith in each of us, that you would help our eyes to be fixed on who you are and what you're capable of. And God, so we ask as the author of life that you would bring glimpses of the world that you intended into this room in the here and now. God, to the people that are being prayed for in this room that may not even be here, that you would bring glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth in the here and now, that we would see your healing and your restoration, and we would see it as an example of the world that you created in the beginning and the world that you are bringing all of us towards eventually. So God, we ask that you would heal completely and fully. God, we acknowledge that you not healing right now does not make you any less good. It does not make you any less God. But God, we plead with you to heal. And that that process would increase faith in each of us, in who you are and what you're capable of. God, my prayer is that someone in this room that has even struggled, to continue to believe that you're real, that you exist. God, that they would receive healing and that it would increase their faith. God, my my prayer is also for those in this room that have experienced chronic pain or disease or illness for years and whose faith has not wavered in the least, they have not struggled to believe who you are. God, for them that you would just cause it, to cause their faith to increase all the more. God and our prayer is that as a result of this morning you would get the glory, you would get the honor that lives would be changed that people would be healed and that it would create worship in us, that it would create recognition for who you are and what you're capable of. That's what we want. That's what we're here to celebrate and acknowledge and align ourselves with this morning is who you are and what you're capable of. So God would you heal We ask all of this in your name, for your glory.